All right, you ready for Revelation part two? And you came back, so. And if you weren't here last week for the first intro message, I highly encourage you to go to our website, connectionchristian.org, and listen to the first message. It's foundational to everything that we're covering, and you really will uh, you'll catch a lot of things in that that really sets the tone for what we're studying for the next seven or eight weeks here as we get into Revelation. And another thing I want to give you, we're not going to get very far into Revelation, which may disappoint some of you because you want to get to the spooky stuff maybe. But tonight and two weeks from tonight, we're having a, like a deeper Bible study. We're going to get to some of the stuff that we're not getting to in the morning messages. It's at the Fizey building from 6 o'clock to 7 o'clock. We have a time of worship and singing. Tonight it'll be a cappella. So if you're into that, come on out and be a part of that. And guys, I need you there. We need some bass voices. So... But there'll be a time of singing, then there will be a time of study. Ginger Bowden will be teaching tonight out of Revelation 4, 5, 6, and 7. And, um, and then in two weeks, Lauren Raspberry will be teaching. So I hope you'll come out. And then after that, I want you to bring food because we're going to eat some dessert together after the teaching time. So where are you? Erica, I need you bringing a Toll House pie. <laughs> I shouldn't have said that in the sermon today. Now everybody's thinking about Toll House pie. You know, speaking of Ginger Bowden, we have something very special in the life of our church family Ginger, for the last several years, has been getting her master's in spiritual formation and leadership, Christian education at Johnson University, and she has graduated. Ginger's already a very gifted teacher in our church, but she wants to take that to the next level. She's already been invited to speak in several places and conferences, and she's just a good teacher in our church, and she's asked to be ordained as a teacher, and uh, we want to commission her as a church. She's come and she's met with our elders. We've gone through doctrine and philosophy and everything. What is ordination? Maybe you're thinking, what is that? I don't even know what that is. And this is where we as a church, we create a mutual accountability. We, every one of us are ministers, but some of us, we just, uh, we want to use all the talents God's given us, maybe some, some point in a full-time kind of way, but we want to en- endorse Ginger wherever she's at to say, our elders have examined her teaching and we are stand behind her. She's accountable to us. We're accountable to her and to Tom to, to support them wherever they're teaching. So, and I'm thankful that Ginger gets to teach in our church. And if you haven't heard her teach before, I guarantee if you come tonight, you're going to be like, wow, that was great. Brian, we don't even need you. Just, Ginger, you just teach all the time. So that's next Saturday at 11 o'clock in the morning at the Fizey building, and you're invited to come be a part of that service as well. So I got a question for you. Have you ever experienced something so bad that it turned you off to something forever? Like you were like, I will never get past that. I will never do that again. I will never try that. I will never go. Maybe it was when you were, um, maybe when you're pregnant and you smelled something or ate something, you're like, I can never eat that again. Or I'll tell you, I had that experience once and it was with something that I love. It was with milk. Growing up, man, I could not get enough milk. My poor mom had to buy like two gallons of milk every day just about because we're just, I just got milk. Where did it go? I love every aspect of milk. I just love it growing up. But something happened my senior year of high school that turned me off to milk. I'm like, oh, I will never drink milk ever again. So was, this new donut shop opened up in our town, and I was on my way to school with some friends, and we stopped by this brand-new donut shop, and it was crowded. We go in there. We get our donuts, chocolate-covered Long John's, and I grabbed a carton of milk out of the refrigerator there, and I paid for it all. It was, you know, like the kind that we get at school. It was that kind where you have to do the spout. I think we got a picture of it up on the screen. It was a little taller than the ones you get at school. And I just immediately, I'm still in the store. There's a crowd of people all around. I just opened the milk and took a chug. And in doing that, I violated one of my rules that I just never violate. I drank before I looked at the date on the side. I've been drinking milk out of a carton since kindergarten. I know better. 
you always check the date first. This is the one time in my life I did not check the date. This is the one time that it bit me. So I've got this, what I imagine is going to be icy cold milk and lumps go into my mouth. Yeah? Whew. At which point, now I, what do I do? There's people around. Ugh. And I look at the date. It's three weeks expired. You haven't even been open three weeks. How can you have milk that's outdated three weeks? I didn't want to drink milk ever again. I tell you, finishing that carton of milk was the hardest thing I've ever done in my <laughs> You know, for someone who loved milk as much as I did and still do, that was really hard to get past. Have you ever had something like that where you're just like, I will never, ever, ever get past that. I will never do that again. Maybe for you it was a, uh, an experience in a restaurant or maybe it was something you ate. Maybe it was uh, a relationship and you're like, whew, I'm never, I'm not just, that's it, I'm done. <laughs> or maybe it was, unfortunately for you, maybe it was a church experience and you're like, okay, I guess just church isn't for me. God must not be for me. And if that was you, I'm thankful that you're here in church today, whatever brought you here and God bless you. But have you had an experience you just thought, I will never forget this, I will never get past this. What do you do in a situation like that? How do you get past it? Because you've got to live. I'll tell you what worked for me, how I got back on the milk truck so to speak. It was about a month of just every time I thought of milk, I just made that face, you know. But after a month, I started remembering what I liked about milk again. I, I stopped thinking about milk at its worst, and I started remembering milk in an ice-cold glass with a peanut butter sandwich folded in half the way it's supposed to be, right? Uh, an ice-cold glass of milk with chocolate chip cookies. Ice-cold milk on cereal. Ice-cold milk all by itself. I just... You know, it, what got me past milk at its worst was remembering how milk could be at its best. And I would say that's probably true for every experience in life that you've ever had that's negative. When things are at their worst, we need a reminder of how things can be and will be when they're at their best. In fact, you can write that down. That's free. <laughs> when things are at their worst, you need to remember how they can be at their best. We get into Revelation. We look at what John wrote here. As John wrote this and what, what Mark read just a moment ago, John was having a bad milk life right then. And here's how I know. It's in verse 9. So Mark read this, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John didn't have to say how he was doing. Everybody 2,000 years ago who read that would have immediately known how John was doing. And we just miss it because it's like 2,000 years later and we don't get it. So let me just change the wording here. And you might understand, like, if I wrote a letter to you and I said, I, Brian, am on the island of Hawaii for the testimony of Jesus, what would you think? Wow, sign me up for that mission trip, right? It must be rough, you know, just go to, I, Brian, am on the island of Nassau or Tahiti or Oahu for Jesus. It's a, oh, a glamorous missions trip. You're sitting on the beach sipping mimosas and preaching Christ. Sign me up for that. Is that what John is saying here? I'm on the island of Patmos just having a great time. No. The island of Patmos was a place where political prisoners were sent into exile. If you wanted to get rid of someone and make them disappear, you sent them to Patmos. So imagine if John had written this. I, John, am on Alcatraz because of the testimony of Jesus. Wouldn't you know immediately what kind of a day he was having? I, John, am in, in Guantanamo Bay because I testified about Jesus. See, when John wrote, I, John, am on the island of Patmos, this is not a glamorous missions trip. This is not just an easy thing. He's not there enjoying himself. He's there because he's a political prisoner. He's not in a nice place. And so I look at John, I think, what kind of a guy gets exiled? 
we, we know what kind of a person gets sent to Guantanamo. Is John like a terrorist? Is he really a bad guy? What did he do to make people so mad at him that they got rid of him? Well, you've got to understand, this is John. Who is he? He's John the Apostle John. John, who one of the twelve who followed Jesus. This is John who wrote, in the Bible, wrote the Gospel of John. This is John who wrote 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, those letters that are toward the end of your Bible. He's John the Revelator. He's John. This is Jesus' best friend when Jesus was a man on earth. This is that John. He's a good guy. Not that he was always like that, though. If you were to read John's biography from earlier in his life, he was a pretty rough guy growing up. He and his brother James were professional fishermen. They worked with their dad, Zebedee. They were rough. Their nickname was Sons of Thunder. There was this one time where these guys, these professional fishermen, were following Jesus, and they all were going to go through this town in Samaria, and the town refused to let Jesus go through. And James and John are like, Hey, Jesus, you want us to call down fire from heaven on these guys and destroy them for you? Jesus like, No, I don't want you to call down fire from heaven. Knock it off, guys. That's the kind of guys they were. They would have got along really well with the guys from Deadliest Catch. They were just ready to fight. That's John. But you know, three and a half years with Jesus does something to you, something good. John learned how to get that power under control. He learned to be a gentle man. This is the same John who would later write in 1 John, Beloved, let's love each other, for love is of God, and everybody who loves is born of God, and they know God. And if you don't love everybody, then you don't know God, because God is love. He's a guy who talked about loving other people. In his lifetime, he just became this pastor who loved people and, and loved the church of Jesus, and he just loved sharing about Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that he became a softy either. He never compromised his convictions. He, he knew when to stand up, and he, was, he refused to give in when it came to Jesus. There's this one time where he got in sideways with the Jewish authorities, and the same ones who killed Jesus found John and Peter preaching about Jesus. They're like, you guys got to stop this. You can't be preaching about Jesus anymore. And John and Peter are like, all right, look, you guys do what you got to do. Threaten us with a beating, fine. But we're going to keep preaching about Jesus because that guy's changed our lives and he told us to tell people about him. And we're going to, you beat us if you need to, but we're not going to compromise about Jesus. We're going to keep preaching and teaching about him. Later on in the book of Acts, you find that John and Peter and the other apostles actually were beaten for preaching about Jesus, but they never compromised. And John lived that way for like 60 or 70 more years after Jesus' ministry. Just going around and telling people about Jesus' love. In fact, here's something you may not know. John outlived all the other apostles. All the other apostles were killed for their faith. John may have done some of their funerals. John may have seen Peter crucified upside down. John certainly may have done the funerals of other church leaders. So at this point in his life when he's on Patmos, he's like this old man who, before he went there, was a pastor in the church at Ephesus, one of the seven churches that's talked about here. He oversaw all those churches in that region. Just think about this. What would it be like to be in church and the Apostle John comes in and sits down to teach? Ninety-some years old. I mean, maybe you weren't even born when Jesus lived on the earth, you're like three or four generations removed. It'd be like having a World War I veteran come in and speak to you. And he can tell you about the time he remembers when Jesus did that miracle or when Jesus said this. Just a guy that everybody loved and respected. He's a gentle guy. Now, I've got to ask this. What is it about a 90-some-year-old man that makes him so threatening that you have to ship him off to a desert island to get rid of him? 
Get rid of that guy. He's a real threat. Oh, you mean the guy with the dentures and the walker? Yeah, he's a real threat to us. Get rid of him. Well, here's what you need to understand. John lived in the Roman Empire, and you've probably heard about them. And in the Roman Empire, they needed two things to maintain control over everything. Uh, One thing they needed was power. And the Roman Empire had power because they had the Roman legions. For one thing, you know, the Roman legions had all this military uh, technology is the, the most advanced the world had ever seen. So they could go and pretty much stomp anybody who got out of line. So there was a lot of peace because everybody was afraid to do anything else. So they needed power. The other thing that the Roman Empire needed was uh, they needed, I don't know if you call it faith. Uh, in America, we'd say you need the permission of the people that you're leading. But in the Roman Empire, they needed the people to believe in them. Because, obviously, the people who are being led outnumber the people who are leading. So they needed this. The way the Roman Empire usually achieved this was by deifying the Roman emperors after they died. Like, if you're an emperor, people kind of knew, this guy's going to become a god someday, so we better respect him. Until it comes along to about the year 100 AD, this guy named Domitian becomes emperor. I think we got the, yeah, we got the picture up here. If you saw Gladiator and you know Commodus, Domitian and Commodus had a lot in common. If you think of Joaquin Phoenix's character, Domitian was a little off. And I'll tell you how I know that. Domitian said, you know, we usually deify the emperors once they die. We give them a commemorative coin. That's really nice. But I don't want to die before that happens. And he declared himself a god while he was still alive. I don't know if he got the commemorative coin or not, but he's like, I am a god. You must worship me. So now we got this new thing going on in the Roman Empire. In order for people to show their faith in the Roman Empire, they had to do this. They had to go into a temple where they lived. They had to go to an altar in the front, take a pinch of incense, sprinkle it on the altar flame, and say, Caesar is Lord. Okay. So we have this large and growing group of people all through the Roman Empire who, as they gather every Sunday in homes... And in public meeting places, what do they say when they gather? They don't say Caesar is Lord. They say Jesus is Lord. And we didn't need to make a commemorative coin to, to say he's Lord. He actually like rose from the dead. That's, that's kind of powerful. And you've also got this group of people who very respectfully said, um, I will not go in that temple, sprinkle the incense on the altar and say Caesar is Lord because he's not. Jesus is Lord. Not being rude here. I'm just not going to do it. So what does the Roman Empire do with this large and growing group of people who do not toe the party line? They start going after the leaders. They start killing the the leaders, the apostles, the church leaders. They put them in prison. They go after John. They tried to kill John. We don't know this from the Bible. We know this from tradition that they actually boiled him in oil. How much do you hate somebody to put them in hot oil? It didn't kill him, so they said, well... You know, this killing the leaders isn't working out. It just seems to make the church grow and grow and grow. The more we persecute them, let's just get rid of them. So they sent them out to Patmos. So let's go back to Revelation. John's on the island of Patmos. It's the Lord's Day. It's Sunday. Not a whole lot of options for church services on Patmos, do you think? He's probably, if you put yourself in his sandals, worried about his church. He's worried about the leaders that have been put in prison for Christ. He's doing the best he can to worship. And then something amazing happens. Look in verse 10. It says, On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit. I heard behind me a loud voice. It was a voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, 
and Laodicea. Okay, if we're going to go through these verses, I want you to see there's a lot of symbolism here. So this is maybe a good point where you want to take some notes and write some things down. And the first thing that happens here is John's just there worshiping and he hears this voice behind him. It's not literally a trumpet. It's not like a voice went, do, 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 do. It's not like that. It's just a voice that's very loud and commanding. What does a trumpet do in battle? Tells the troops, time to go, let's go. And so this is a voice that's very commanding. You can't ignore it. It's a voice behind him. He probably was wondering, well, how did somebody get behind me? I didn't see anybody there. And so this voice says, I want you to write some things down. He says, I want you to write down what you see. Remember, Revelation is an apocalypse. It's a revealing. It's not a prophecy, which is something you listen to. It's something you see. So John, write down what you see. All these incredible images you get through Revelation. John's going to see these in a vision. And then the voice says, send this to the seven churches. And we talked about this last week. There are seven cities in what we now know as Turkey. They would, we call it Asia Minor. If you see the island of Patmos, the first city the mail would have got to was Ephesus. This was a world-class city. We'll talk about this next week. This is one of the largest cities in the world. The mail would have got there and it would have gone in a loop all the way around to Laodicea. So these are seven real cities with seven real churches in them. And they're going to be the first ones who get this revelation from John. Now, but we did also talk last week about what the, seven, the number seven means, right? It's symbolic. What does it mean? Wholeness, completeness, a whole set. So what we understand is while this was originally written to seven real churches 2,000 years ago, this was written to every church in all places at all times. So Revelation wasn't first written to us, but it was certainly written for us. Okay? So this is for us today. And... Who is it that's saying this? Who is it that has the voice like the trumpet? I don't know if you get your Bible. What color are the letters in your Bible? There's a little clue there. This is the words of Jesus. It's been a long time since we've seen red letters in the Bible. For the most part, the last time you see those are back in the Gospels, right? So we have new word from Jesus to his church. And he says, I want you guys to pay attention. This is a new word from Jesus. You ever had an experience where you see somebody you haven't seen for a long time? Like, man, it's been years. And your mental picture of that person is of the, like the last time you saw them. I was at a concert a few years ago, and I was out in the hallway between concerts, and it was just really crowded. And as I was uh, walking through the hallway, just trying to make my way down to, I don't know, refreshments or whatever, I heard someone yell, Brian! So I didn't even think anything about it because like, there's like thousands of people in the hallway. Chances are there's lots of Brian's probably not talking to me. So I just hear this voice just keep going. And I hear it again, Brian, over here. So then I decide to look just in case it's somebody I know. And I look and I see this middle-aged lady across the room, across the hallway. And she's saying, Brian, but I don't know her. So I just keep walking. She said, Brian, over here. And I look again and she's like looking right at me, which now I'm nervous because she obviously knows me and I have no clue who she is, right? And she starts making her way over to me. So I said, okay. And I'm praying the whole way, Lord, let her name pop into my head before she gets here because I have no idea who she is. And just as she got there, I remembered who she was and her name came out of my mouth. The thing was, I hadn't seen her. We were like teenagers last time we'd seen each other. It's like some 20-some years later. She changed from the time that I last remember seeing her. Obviously, I hadn't because she, she knew who I was, but... How long has it been since John has last seen Jesus? The last time John saw Jesus, Jesus was 33 years old. He was ascending to heaven. What is this, 50, 60, 70 years later? I bet you John has changed in that time. 
maybe he's close to 100 years old. Has Jesus changed? John turns around. He remembers that voice. And the first thing he says is he saw seven golden lampstands. We'll get to that in a minute. But he sees these seven golden lampstands. And then he says he saw someone like a son of man. Last week I told you there's 404 verses in Revelation and over 500 references back to the Old Testament. This is one of them. We're not going to look at this right now, but go ahead and write down Daniel 7, 13 and 14. This is one of those references that I'm talking about. This is something, a vision that Daniel the prophet saw like six, seven hundred years before. He saw someone like a son of man. So this is what John is saying. I saw that one that Daniel saw in the vision. This is a pointer to whoever it is that John saw was divine. Okay, and then he goes on. He says this. The one that I saw, like a son of man, was dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. Again, the first people who read this would have immediately understood that symbolism. Imagine if I had read this. John turned around and he saw someone wearing blue scrubs. What would you immediately think? The guy's a doctor, maybe a surgeon. If I said John turned around and he saw someone in a blue uniform, you might say, oh, he's a police officer. The long robe with the sash, that's a uniform. It's what a priest would have worn at the temple in Jerusalem. So it's a pointer that this guy is a priest. He's someone who intercedes between God and people. He's wearing a golden sash, which is something that a king would wear. So he's a priest and he's a king, whoever it is that John sees. And he goes on, he says this, His head and hair were white like wool, white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. Again, this is symbolism. It doesn't mean that Jesus' hair had turned white. It may have. What it means is that he was pure. This is again a reference back to Daniel. You can write this down, Daniel 7, 9. This is a tip-off that whoever John was standing before was extremely pure. It says his eyes were blazing fire. Anybody else besides me think of Superman, X-ray? That's not what this is. It's not like Jesus is burning people up with his eyesight. And it's not that he's angry either. His eyes are blazing. It's just an indication that he sees everything, that he's got intuition, that he's very smart. And John goes on and he says this, his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. This is yet another reference to Daniel. Daniel saw a vision of a, an idol or a statue that had clay feet and the clay feet broke and the statue toppled. Jesus' feet are bronze, which is powerful. It's, uh, it's valuable. It's strong. What it suggests is Jesus is not going anywhere, that he's incredibly stable. And his voice is like rushing waters. Again, it's not like literal, like Jesus sounds like Niagara Falls. It's just that it's a voice that's very commanding. It's a voice that, that you would immediately respect and want to obey if you heard it. And Jesus is so powerful and John hears his voice and he says, in his right hand he held seven stars. And we'll get to what that means in a minute. And out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword, which if that's literal, that's kind of spooky, isn't it? Walking around with this, ouch, if nothing else. It's not literal. In Ephesians 6, in Hebrews 4, it talks about the word of the Lord being like a two-edged sword. It means whatever he says is insightful, it's powerful, gets right to the heart of the matter, it's wise. And he says that his face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. Like you can't even look at him. He's so glorious. When you were a kid, did you ever do that thing, like have a contest with your friends where you see who can stare at the sun longest? Anybody else besides me? I just, I hadn't messed up friends apparently. We tried. But you can look at the sun for like that long. <laughs> and, then you, and then for the rest of the day, you've got this green spot right in front of your eyes. So I'm glad to know that all of you are wiser than I was. You never did that. 
Looking at Jesus was like that. John says, I can't even look at him. He's so glorious. How did John respond to this? How would anyone respond in, the, in an encounter like this? He fell to the ground. Verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But then he placed his right hand on me and he said, Don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forever and ever. And look, I hold the keys of death and Hades. John, buddy, you know who I am. You know that I'm alive. You were the first person to get to my tomb that day 70 years ago when I rose from the dead. You were the first one to get there and you, know, you went in and you saw that I'm alive. You saw me alive. You saw me ascend to heaven. I'm still here. I'm not going anywhere. And I've got the keys to death. Everybody who believes in me will do the same thing I did. Everyone will come back to life. And then in verse 19, which is a great outline for Revelation, by the way, write down what you've seen, what is now, and what will take place later. And then Jesus goes on and he explains the symbolism here. Verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels or the messengers of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches themselves. I want to talk about those lampstands first. I love this image that every church is like a lampstand. Those seven churches in Ephesus, Thyatira and Smyrna, Philadelphia, Laodicea, all those seven, seven lampstands. And Jesus is walking among those lampstands. There may have literally been lampstands there, but they represent those churches and their light in their community. Which means, in Jesus' eyes, Connection Christian Church in Darden Prairie is a lampstand that he's placed here. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but back in Matthew 5, when Jesus was here on earth, he preached a sermon. He said that we are like uh, the light of the earth. We're like a city on a hill. And you don't hide a light. You, you illuminate things with this light. And he says that we as his followers are supposed to like, point the way to God by our lives. That people see us and what we do together as a church and they find God through us. We're a lampstand in this community. And I love this other image. It says that Jesus had these seven stars in his hand. These are angels. And I find it fascinating that every church has an angelic messenger. You're going to find angels all through Revelation. What, what does it mean? Well, it could mean that we literally have an angel of Connection Christian Church. And I think it's entirely possible. It could also mean, because this word just means messenger, it could mean the, the people who speak and lead at a church, the messenger of the church. Either way, I just love the idea that Jesus' fingerprints are all over this church. He holds the church in his hand. You know, as I look at this, just three things I want to take away from this as we study this. And I'm out of time, so I'm going to have to go quick. So just write fast, all right? When I see what happened that Sunday morning for John, I realize that Jesus is worthy of our worship. John could not help it. When he saw Jesus, he fell and he worshipped him. When you encounter Jesus, you can't help but worship him. And he's worthy of it. I look at this, and we think of Jesus as 33-year-old Jesus. Crucified, risen. We think of him as the man he was. And he still is a man. But Revelation gives us the rest of the picture of what he's like now. He's someone that if you encountered right now, you would fall to your feet. To see his face, it's just stunning like the sun. You wouldn't be able to look at him. Back in 2010, British astronomers found what they believed to be the largest and brightest star in the entire universe. 
as far as what we think, this is the brightest one we've found so far. They don't have a name for it now yet. They just call it R136A1, okay? To show you how big this is, this is like 265 times bigger than our star, our sun. It, it, if you put it where our sun is, it would go out well past the orbit of Jupiter. It's enormous. And it is 10 million times brighter than our sun, which means is R136A1 is that much brighter than our sun as our sun is brighter than our moon. Isn't that incredible? And the one who made R136A1 looks at this tiny, insignificant man named Domitian who wants people to call him Lord. How can he not help but snicker? Who's worthy of our worship? Caesar? Stuff? Some person in your life? Or Jesus? The actor Robert De Niro a few years ago said something kind of controversial. He said this, something pretty provocative. He said, when I get to heaven, I'm going to sit down and ask God to explain himself. If there is a God, he has a lot to answer for. Robert, you can play a pretty intimidating guy in some of your movies, and I respect that. But when Robert De Niro comes face to face with Jesus, he's not going to be asking anything. And I don't say that to disrespect him. Actually, when I hear things like this, I pray for people like Robert De Niro. I pray for him that here in this life, while he still can choose, that he chooses to bow before Jesus and submit to him. Because there is going to come a day where everyone and everything in creation comes before Jesus, and some will choose to bow and worship because they've been already doing it before, and some will do it for the first time. Satan himself will bow before Jesus because you cannot help but worship him. He's that powerful. Here's one other, another thing I take away from this. Jesus sees the big picture. He told us he does. He says, I'm going to show you the things that were and the things that are and the things that come. John, I'm going to show you that. And I find this so fascinating that when Jesus appears to John, he blows right past his present situation. Did you see that? He didn't say a word about, John, I feel really bad that you're suffering on this island because of me. My bad. What can I do to help you, buddy? Not a word about it. He immediately comes and he says, John, I've got a word for my church and you're the guy that needs to deliver it. I need you to do something for me. But Jesus is aware of the big picture and that's why he doesn't talk to John about what he's going through right there. See, if you find a little trouble, this a little troubling, what this means is we've probably bought into the American image of Jesus. Mark Driscoll describes it this way. He says, in our view of Jesus, he shows up as a sympathetic therapist. And he says, look, I'm here because you're the center of the world and I'm here to fix all of your problems and solve all of the things that are going wrong in your life, give you all of your rewards. And that's not the picture of Jesus that Revelation paints at all. Is there a reward? Yeah, but it's to come. We're not the center of the world and Jesus is not our therapist. So Jesus doesn't even address what John's going through, but that doesn't mean that he's unconcerned. It doesn't mean that he doesn't care. Revelation is proof that Jesus knows what's going on and that he cares. He sees the big picture. And in fact, when we study Revelation, we find that John actually received what he needed because Jesus sees the big picture. The churches that were being persecuted, the churches that were compromising their faith, we all get what we need because Jesus sees the big picture and he tells us. You know what Jesus goes ahead and tells us? He didn't even address what you're going through right now. He says, I know the end of the story. And because I know the end of the story, the mission is not the end of your story. He's a blip on the line of eternity. 
few years from now, you won't even think about what you're going through. It's why the Bible can say that these light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs everything that we're going through right now. It's because in the big picture, this is nothing. And it seems so huge right now. It seems like everything, whatever it is you're going through, but Jesus says, I see the big picture, and if you're in me, it's working out fine. You're going to be fine. There's one last takeaway I see here, and I just wanted to make sure I do explain this. Jesus is aware of your situation. That's the message of the one who walks among the lampstands. Those lampstands are us. And Jesus is right here, and he's intimately acquainted with what's going on in your life and in our church. He's got his fingerprints all over your life. He's got it all under control. And if you're in him, things are going to work out fine. Yeah, I told you Revelation rightly understood is inspiring, not scary, right? Well, I guess if you are not in Christ, maybe it would be scary. And that's why we, every week, we offer you an invitation to do something about that. To, to put your heart right with the God of the universe through Jesus. That's why he came. He came to die for us and, and he lives for us even now. And you can put your faith and your trust in him. I invite you to stand right now and let me pray for you. <coughs> Father, I want to thank you that you've given us these words, this revelation. Help us to understand that this is really true. That these are some things that have happened and there's some things that still have yet to come but all of it is under your control and that history and our lives will end just the way that you've planned and ordained and, and that for all those who are in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation and there's nothing that can separate us from your love. Help us to understand this for our lives today. Help us to submit to your leadership, to choose to submit to you while we can. Thank you for what you're doing in this church and I pray in Jesus' name.